I wonder if you've ever been walking toward a stadium, and as you're still blocks away, you can hear the roar of the crowd or the bands playing. And as you hear that noise, do you get excited? Does it make you want to walk faster to get in the gates and be a part of all that's happening? As you think about that, I wonder how many of us have that same sense of excitement when it comes to Sunday. As you think about coming to church and being able to fellowship with others and sing songs of worship and be here to hear God's word, does it make you want to get in the gates faster? Does it make you want to be here and be a part of what's happening? What we're going to see today in Nehemiah chapter 12 is that the people came with excitement. They came to worship God. You know, it's funny, we'll go to a football game or some other sports activity and we'll yell until we don't have a voice left. But how many times do we come and when we're here and worship, we're singing so softly or just mumbling or mouthing the words that the person next to us can't even hear what we're saying? What we're going to see today in Nehemiah chapter 12 is the people didn't hold back. They were parading around the walls. They were singing. They were joyful in their celebration. Now, maybe we'll never parade around the walls at Wayside, but there are things that we're going to see today that we can apply in our life, like how the people prepared themselves for worship and how the people came with a sense of expectation as they freely worshiped as well. So I invite you to turn with me now in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 12, where I want us to pick up in verses 27 through 29, where we left off last time. In Nehemiah 12, 27 through 29, what we're told is, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the, the Netophites and from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. Now, what we find here in verse 27 is there's the catalyst for the people all coming together is the dedication of the walls. You remember back when we began this series in the book of Nehemiah that the walls of the city were in ruins. There was rubble everywhere. The people uh, were in distress. The name of God was suffering reproach. Nehemiah heard that when he was in the capital of Susa. And God moved him in his heart to come and be part of this rebuilding project. And he organized the people and they began this work. And with God's help, the walls that had been broken down for 142 years, 142 years, were rebuilt in 52 days. And as this amazing work and miracle of God had taken place, the people recognized God had been with them, that he had blessed their work, that he had given them protection in the time of rebuilding from their enemies all around. And so what they do, did was they turned back to him. There was a time of national repentance and dedication, as we saw in chapters 8 through 10. And now as we come to the end of chapter 12, we find that the weeping of the people when they had been in reproach and distress is turned to rejoicing as they rededicate these rebuilt walls. And as the people do this, as the priest and the people are gathered together in the city and the surrounding area, what they're doing is they're taking time out. They're pausing, just as you're doing this morning, as you've taken time out from your week to come and be a part of the worship, to be here uh, gathering together to worship God. And as they did so, what we find in this passage is they made sure they were properly prepared not just in the details of what's going to happen, but also in their hearts. 
As you look at verse 30, it says, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. As we saw back in chapters 9 and 10, there was this national time of repentance. The people turned from their sins. They rededicated their lives. But just as we do, there are times that as we go through our day-to-day, we can fall back into sin. There can be something that has happened that has broken our fellowship with God. And so as these people have already rededicated themselves, they come together for this time of worship, and they recognize we need to make sure that, that we're properly prepared, that we're confessed, our sins are dealt with, and we're ready to worship God. And this purification that's taking place probably parallels what we find in Numbers chapter 8. Because in Numbers 8.21, there it says, The Levites purified themselves from sin, and they washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. So this purifying process begins with the physical. They washed their bodies. They washed the robes they were wearing. Then there was a sin offering made, blood that was spilled to atone for their sins. And as they're washing away the external dirt, what it's doing is it's causing them then to think internally. Okay, we're physically clean, but what about internally? What sins have we committed? And as they're, they're doing this, as the people prepare to come to worship, uh, it says that not only the priests, but the people and even the walls are being dedicated. Many of you prepared for worship this morning physically. You got up, you showered, you shaved, fixed your hair, your makeup, thought about the clothes you were going to wear. And as you were doing that this morning, I wonder how many of us stopped and said, okay, I look fine on the outside, but what about inside? What does my heart look like this morning? What's happened this week? Is there some sin that I need to confess? Is there something where things have kind of gone off the rails? 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us that God looks not at the externals, but he looks at our heart. As you were preparing yourself physically, did you prepare yourselves spiritually? Now, for us today, we don't have to spill blood. We don't have to bring sacrifices and offerings because Jesus Christ did that for us. He went to the cross as the perfect and permanent Lamb of God. He gave his life. His blood was shed to wash away our sins. And when we become a believer in Jesus, when we accept his death in our place, we are declared righteous because of what Christ did for us. But there are still times where we need to confess those sins that that have happened in our life. In 1 John 1, 9, it tells us in those times, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we hear that word confession a lot. When is the last time you really thought about what confession means? You see, the Greek word that's used there is homo legeo. It's it's actually two words put together. Homo means the same. And then legeo means to speak or to say. So what the word confession literally means is to say the same thing as God says about our sin. So what does God say about our sin? Well, he says it's wrong. He says it's wretched. He says it's costly. The people in the Old Testament days understood just how costly, how, how wrong their sin was, the price that had to be paid, because they would bring a physical animal that would then be slaughtered. Its blood would run out. Its, its flesh would be burned on the altar. They saw the consequence of their sin in vivid detail. They experienced 
all of the horrors of the loss of a life and the smells of the sacrifice and the various things that were taking place uh, there in the altar. Jesus Christ went through a horrific sacrifice for you and me. Isaiah 53 describes his death in detail as he was beaten, as he was pierced, as he died on a cross. We sit here today and we we look at a cross and we don't think in terms of how costly our sin is very often. But God says, when you confess your sins, I want you to say the same thing about it as I say. And that's why he also calls us to repent. And that word repent means literally to recognize we're going in the wrong direction and to stop and turn around and go in the other way. It means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And so again, what sin, when we as Christians understand what our sin is, you can picture yourself standing at the cross of Christ and when you turn your back on God and you walk away from him to the world and to sin, what God says is you're going the wrong way and you stop. You have a change of mind that leads to a change of action where you recognize I need to turn around. I need to come back to God. I need to be in full fellowship with him. And this is what's happening here. As, as, as we walk through the doors to worship here at Wayside, whether it's here or at Stone Oak, I wonder how often we stop and we think, I'm coming before a holy God. And, and he is to be approached with purity of, of hands and hearts, so to speak, where we recognize that we're coming into the very presence where we get to adore and worship God. And do you take time to confess your sins? And many of you will prepare yourself before you ever leave home. You'll spend time before you get here thinking through and confessing your sins, but sometimes we have to confess our sins from home to church, Right? Your family was running late, so there was a fight in the car. Somebody cut you off in traffic. You saw the last parking place here at church, and somebody else got it. And so there are times that we have to confess our sins anew as we we come in here. So I want to encourage you to come and prepare yourselves to worship. Another thing you can do is to prepare yourself by looking at the passage. Each week as we go through a series, you know wherever we left off last week, we're picking up in the next verse. And so do you spend time at home reading through it? When you walk in and you get a bulletin and it has the sermon passage and a title, do you think about what is this message going to be? I see some of you sitting there with your Bibles open or looking at the the passage on your phones and you're reading through it and you're thinking through, uh, what is the pastor going to talk about today? I wonder if Roger's going to answer this question. I wonder if he's going to talk about this. Do you anticipate what the message is going to be? Do you leave your, your heart open to God leading you, not just through what the pastor may say you should you know, think in terms of application, but what about the times where God prompts you to do something that the, the sermon didn't cover? Do we prepare ourselves in worship? When, when you come to church, do you come ready to hear not only the sermon but to worship God? Or do you come with the expectation that there's going to be something wrong? Are you thinking about the mistakes that are going to be made in the the sermon? There was a nursery rhyme written that uh, says, Kitty cat, kitty cat, where have you been? The cat responds, I've been to London to visit the queen. Kitty cat, kitty cat, what did you see there? He says, I saw a frightened little mouse under her chair. 
You know, here was a cat who came into the presence of royalty. And all he saw were rodents. Because that's what cats do, right? They look for mice. What about when you come to church? Do you come with a heart of expectation that I'm coming to visit royalty? To worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ? Or do you look for rodents? Do you look for the things that are going to go wrong? When the singers or the musicians are leading us, do you say, oh, they were off there or they missed that note or something was messed up? Because if you're looking for mice in the music, you're probably going to find it. As you hear the sermon, do you think it's long and boring? And if you think so, then it's probably going to be long and boring. You know, we just heard from our brother Charles uh, from Rwanda. And I'm going to be in Rwanda this summer and then to Uganda speaking at the African Leadership Summit there. And Charles and I were talking about, could I preach when I'm there in uh, Rwanda? And so I said, well, tell me about how long you want the sermons to be. Because when you preach overseas, oftentimes some services are in English, two other services are in English, and a third one is translated. So as a speaker, you know you have to kind of adjust your message to allow the time for back-and-forth translation And Charles said, oh, well, our services can go three hours, so you don't have to worry about that. (laughs) And you're saying, well, Roger, we're in San Antonio, not Rwanda, so don't don't feel that liberty to preach that long, right? (laughs) Again, what's your expectation when you come? As, As we look at the people in this passage, they came prepared. They understood they were participants. If you come to a service and you think you're here to be entertained, then you're missing while you're here. There's an audience of one when we gather for worship, God. It's not the rest of us. We have an audience of one. The musicians are not here to entertain us. They're here to lead us. The sermon is not here to tickle our ears. It's here to encourage and feed us and and challenge us to go out into the world and live for Christ. As we look at the people here in Nehemiah 12, 31 through, 30, through uh, 43, it tells us that they came prepared and they participated. It says in Nehemiah 12, 31 and following, that I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall. And I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshiah the, the, and half of the leaders of Judah followed them with Azariah, Ezra, Meshalam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets. And then we read more names and musical instruments that are mentioned. Verse 36 ends by saying, And Ezra the scribe went before them. And at the fountain gate they went directly up to the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Now, you remember in chapter 8, what we saw is that Ezra had gathered the people together for this time of rededication. And here we read that they're at the fountain gate, which is where this reading of the law and the preparation of the people took place. So it's appropriate that here is the place where they, they gather and they go up as they're reminded of this time of dedication. Now, I want you to remember the walls had been in ruins and the people had built them. So the first time the people got up on top of the walls were uh, not there to have this time of celebration, but they were workers. They were workers on the wall building them. And then we saw after the walls were done and the gates were hung that they they were watchers on the wall. They were protecting the city. 
They were standing guard for the enemies. And now they've gone from workers and watchers on the wall to worshipers on the wall. And they're up there on top of it, celebrating the work that God has done. Verse 30 tells us that there is a second group that is going in the opposite direction. It says, the second choir proceeded to the left while I, that's Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. This is that fortress that is right there by the temple. It says, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So they've gone around in opposite directions and they've met up at the temple up on top. And it says that as these these two choirs take their stand in the house of God, so did I and half of the officials with me. And the priest, and some of those are mentioned here, he says, along with the trumpets and more names of those who are ministering are here. And it says, and then the singer sang with Jezariah, their leader. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices. And they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now, as you're reading this passage, you know, I always ask you to put yourself into the passage. I don't want you just to read this and say, okay, people are parading around the walls. I want you to picture what this is like. I want you to think about the joy. I want you to think about the scene. And, and to help you do that, I'm about to show you a video clip of a street band in New Orleans. Now you're going, oh, that's not the best thing. They're, they're singing when the saints go marching in, okay? So we're going to be all right. But as you watch this video clip, I want you to get a sense of just kind of the street celebration, the joy that was happening. y'all were in your seats doing this. You wanted to get up and start marching, right? That's kind of the scene that was taking place. As we're reading about this, I want you to picture again these walls and people marching on them. They're not in a single file line. Literally, there are thousands upon thousands of people in these two groups, and they're going around. They're not single file, but they're shoulder to shoulder. This is a picture of the actual broad wall that archaeologists have uncovered back in Jerusalem. Now, this, this wall is hard to tell in terms of its size, but it's 22 feet wide and 25 feet high. And so you could put numerous people side by side like you saw in that video clip. 
You have these bands that are leading the people in in worship. You have these people who are traveling along as they did. Verse 43 says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. People outside of the city, people outside in the countryside can hear the bands and the people. It tells us here in verse 31 that they were made up of great choirs. The Hebrew word that is used here is todah. If you ever go to Jerusalem, if you ever go to a a place where Hebrew is spoken and you want to tell somebody thank you, what you say is todah. It's the the Hebrew word todah. It means thank you. And so literally these choirs are called thank you choirs. They're thanking God. They're giving uh, him praise for what he's done. And as we look at this wall and the people that are marching on it, remember they're, they're multiple people side by side. There are thousands of people that are marching along. And I want to remind you of what we read back in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Because there when the walls were broken down, as the construction was started, as the enemies were trying to discourage the people from their work, as they were mocking them, what it says in Nehemiah 4, 2 is, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even if what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. He said, This is never going to happen. The walls have been broken down for 142 years. Do you really think you guys are going to be successful? Can you build it? Can you build it in a day? Well, it wasn't a day. It was 52 days. He said, are they going to be able to offer sacrifices? We just read about sacrifices being offered there at the temple. Thanksgiving offerings, free will, joyful offerings, saying, God, thank you. We're dedicating the work that you did. Tobias said, even if a fox that weighs just a few pounds would jump on that wall, it's going to come crashing down because your work is so flimsy. And yet there were thousands of people jumping up and down, marching on the wall. Here's the wall thousands of years later still standing. That's what we're reading about. That's what we're looking at here. And instead of the wall coming crashing down, what crashes down is the spirits of their enemies. And as you think about the the, the enemy's spirits being crushed, I want you to contrast that with Nehemiah. Think about Nehemiah, the guy who, when he was back in Persia and Susa, and he heard about the, the city and the walls and ruins and the distress of people and the reproach of God's name. Remember how he wept? And then we saw that he traveled for months to get to Jerusalem. And then he organized the people and he, he went through the work and all the threats and all the hardship and everything that happened. And now Nehemiah is walking around the walls. Do you remember the moonlit ride of Nehemiah back in chapter 2? Where when he first got to the city, it says he rode about to personally inspect the damage. And the rubble was so great that his horse couldn't even pass. He had to dismount. He had to crawl over the rubble of the stones. And now here's Nehemiah marching for two and a half miles around the city on top of the rebuilt walls, unencumbered. With each step he takes, thank you, God. With each stone he looks at, with each worker next to him, with each worshiper around him, he says, God, thank you for what you've done. And he's reminded of of God's great work in and through the people. He's reminded of God's faithfulness. 
You know, as I think about Nehemiah walking around and celebrating and, and enjoying the, the fruits of the labor, uh, it's, it's something that convicts me. Because maybe you're wired a little bit like me. You see, I'm the kind of person that I'm always thinking of the next project. I'm always uh, planning and working on the next thing. I, c- I can come to the completion of something and, and I'm like, thank you, God, that was great, but I'm already on to the next thing and the next thing beyond that. Anybody else here have that problem? Yeah. And what this reminds us is we need to stop and we need to celebrate sometimes. We need to take those moments to linger over what God has done. We need to think back to the blessings in our life. We need to think about the, the milestones and the completions of projects and degrees and, and, and things that God has brought us through. And we need to say, thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the way that you've worked. Again, we just had a wonderful testimony from, from Charles and Florence about the work that God has done in Rwanda. Over two decades of faithfulness to go from 29 children to over 10,000 sponsored kids. And Wayside's a part of that work. Uh, Last year, we took on the project in Kayonza. And and we have hundreds of kids that have been sponsored in and through Africa New Life Ministry and Africa Renewal Ministries, the sister organizations in Uganda and Rwanda. We've been a part of the ministry changing the globe. And these are things that so often we just, we pass by those things, but we need to be able to stop and celebrate sometimes and look back at all that God is doing. And so as we look at this, as they're walking around and they're thanking God, these Torahs, these great choirs of thanksgiving, we're not told what songs they're singing. But if you look through the book of Psalms, which is the hymn book of the Old Testament, that's what Psalms is. It's the hymn book, and you find examples of songs they, they might have been able to sing. One is Psalm 48, 12 through 13. It says, walk about Zion, go around her like the people are doing. Count her towers, consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may be able to tell it to the next generation. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. If you struggle with doing these kind of things, go to the book of Psalms, read through them, find psalms that are places of praise and celebration you can sing back to God. Psalm 103 tells us, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Forget none of his benefits. D.L. Moody, who is a famous pastor and evangelist from the past, was talking about reading this psalm one day. And he said of this psalm, you can't remember them all, but don't forget them all. Remember some of them. Do you remember some of the blessings that God has done in your life? Do you remember ways God has been faithful to you? Hard things he's brought you through? Ways that he's... Uh, come alongside you and taking you through difficult things? Even the breath in our bodies this morning, do we thank God for the blessing of what we have? There was a man who said that he grumbled uh, one day because he had to get up every morning until one morning he couldn't get up. Do we really think about all the things we can thank God for? Even when we face hard times, There are things we can be thankful to God for in them. A great example of that is what Pastor Matthew Henry did when he was robbed one night. 
He was a pastor again from the past, and he was walking home and was robbed one evening. And when he got to his house and he thought about what had happened to him, he took out his journal and he wrote this in it. He said, let me be thankful first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. And third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed someone. Is that the kind of attitude we have? Do we find things to thank God for? Do we live our lives in a way looking at the the deficits or the hard things? Or do we look at the things we can praise God for? As we've gone through this book, we've seen the people had lots of things they could have grumbled about. There was hard economic times. There were enemies all around them. They were under the rule of a foreign king. Uh, There were many sacrifices they were making. But instead of grumbling, they focused on the great things God had done. And as they thanked God, they did so not just with their lips but with their lives. This is what the covenant was that we looked at in chapters 10 through 12 where they said we are going to support the work of God. We're going to be involved in the ministry taking place. And and here in verses 44 through 47, we see them fulfilling that commitment. It says, On that day men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served, for they performed the worship of their God in the service of purification, uh, together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. And so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required, and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron." So what they're doing here is is fulfilling this covenant they made. They said, we will support and minister to those who minister in God's temple. And as they're doing these things, notice in verse 44, it says, the people of Judah rejoiced. They rejoiced as they gave. And this is what we've talked about as well for us as Christians. God doesn't want us to give grudgingly. As you read 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, Let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word for cheerful is hilaros. It's where we get our English word hilarious. When you give, are you hilarious in your giving? This is what God calls us to be. Those who have overflowing joy as we worship and our offerings are part of our worship. And if we look at the people here, they're, they're, they're overflowing in their worship. I love verse 43 where it says that the women and children were also there worshiping on the walls. I want you to think of a time that you've been here in a service where we've had the kids up here on the platform where we've had the kids leading us in worship. You know, Christmas is coming. We talked about this family service where the junior high kids will be leading the worship and the children's ministry will be doing the the reenactment of the 
you know, birth of Jesus. And if you've ever come to that service, you know, it's, it's wonderful to watch. These kids dressed up as the wise men and, and kids fight over who gets to be a sheep, you know. And uh, there's Mary and Joseph in the, you know, little plastic baby Jesus. And, you know, as all of this is taking place, you have parents and grandparents out there. And some of them are just mortified going, is my kid going to do something, you know, that's going to embarrass me as they twirl around or pick their nose or who knows what they're doing up here on the platform, right? But you know what I love about those services is watching the kids just, they don't, they don't care. They're just freely worshiping. And, and they're, they're unencumbered in their worship. Is that the way we worship? Or do we worry about everybody around us and what they're thinking. Remember, there is an audience of one. Now that means, it doesn't mean we should be distracting in how we worship. But do we freely worship God? As we talk about coming before God to freely worship and overflow, uh, sometimes there's pain in the overflow. I've been talking a lot about joy this morning, but I want to make sure that I say something about the overflow of pain. Because there is hardly a Sunday that goes by that as I'm preaching that I look out and I don't see sometimes several people crying through the entire sermon. Now, maybe it's my preaching. I don't know. (laughs) But I do know why some people cry. Because I know about a loss that's happened in their life. They'll come up after the service sometimes and share a, a pain in their life a loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, difficulty in school, the broken uh, part of a relationship in their life. And sometimes people come here and all they can do is sit and cry. And that's great. Because church is a place where you need to come and be free in who you are. Don't come and paste a plastic smile on your face and expect that everybody wants to see you smiling and saying everything's great when you're in great pain. God knows your pain. God has experienced your pain personally. I want to remind you that he took on flesh and blood. He walked the earth with us. He went through the limitations of what it means to be a part of the creation. The creator became a part of the creation. We sing at Christmas about Emmanuel, God with us. And God took on flesh and blood. The Bible tells us he was fatigued at times, so dead tired. He was in the front of a boat with cold waves washing over him, and he didn't even wake up. We read about how he stood at the tomb of a friend. He had lost Lazarus, and he wept. God understands pain. He understands the loss of a loved one. He attended a funeral himself as God the Father watched his son die on a cross to pay the penalty of death that we owe for our sins. And God wants us to know that we can come before him and be real. The Bible tells us he's our father, our daddy. And so when we come together, if you're in pain, if you're hurting, let that overflow. Let the people around you minister to you. Let people know that you're hurting and you need somebody to give you a hug, to pray with you. We have prayer partners at the front after each service, men and women who will stand with you and pray for you. If there's a deeper need that you have where you're saying, I I need to talk to somebody about this, our staff will meet with you in individual appointments to do counseling. And if it's a need that is beyond that, then we'll refer you to professionals who can come alongside and help you even beyond what we can do with you here. 
want you to know that this is a place where you can be real. It's a place where God wants to see us in our heart as well as our happiness. So as we get ready to come to a close today, we're going to go to God in prayer. And as we do, I want you to think in terms of what we've just talked about. As we go to God in prayer, if you have hurt in your life this morning, tell him. Say, God, I'm struggling. I don't understand what you're doing right now. I'm hurting. Let him know. If you have joy in your life, share that with him as well. Say, Daddy, it's been a great run. It's been a good week. Thank you for that promotion at work. Thank you for letting me pass that class, you know, in school. Tell him your joys. He's our father. I want my kids to not just tell me their needs. I want them to celebrate and tell me what their life is like as well. Others of you this morning uh, are saying, you know, I've got lots to thank God for, but the main thing that we can thank God for is the gift of his son, Jesus. The greatest gift we will ever receive at Christmas or any other time is that of his son, Jesus Christ. It tells us in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have the gift of eternal life. And God invites us to come to his son. Romans 10, 9 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. There's that word confession again. Remember what the word confession means? To say the same thing as God says. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we're saying, God, I know and believe that your son is who he said he was, the son of God, that you took on flesh and blood, that you walked the earth among us, that Jesus, you lived a perfect and sinless life, and you ultimately went to the cross as the payment for our sins. You died to pay the wages of sin as death, Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're saying, I believe you're who you said you are and you did what you said you would. You came, you died for me, you washed away my sins. And then you rose from the dead three days later, proving you're who you said you were, the son of God. And I believe that. And I accept your gift of new life today. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. And so if you've never accepted that great gift of new life this morning, do that as we go to prayer and say to God, I'm coming home, Daddy. I accept your death in my place, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Think of these things we've just talked about and talk to God about them. And in a few moments, I'll close this out in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, Daddy, Holy God in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We thank you as a holy God that you know us. 
You know us, God, by name. You know even the most intimate details about each of us, like the number of hairs on our head. Lord God, you know our joys, you know our pains. And Lord God, you know the mess that our world is in, the mess that we're in today, personally. We thank you that you are a God who can handle big messes. God, you did that in Nehemiah's day as you took walls that had been in ruins for 142 years and in a matter of months they were rebuilt. God, we thank you that you can deal with bigger messes like our broken lives as you sent your son Jesus to die for the penalty of sin, to restore the broken fellowship of mankind with you as God and how you invite each of us individually to come and join the family as children of God. I pray, God, if there's anyone here today who's not yet received the greatest gift we can ever receive, that of your son Jesus, that today would be the day where they turn to you and accept that gift of eternal life through grace alone, through faith alone. We thank you, God, for the rest of us who have already come to your son, that you know our needs and you're here again meeting them from what we need to eat, what we need to wear, where we need to live, to the greater needs of long-term fellowship and to be with you ultimately in heaven. We thank you, God, that you are able and ready to meet those needs. Father, for those who know your son, we pray that you would be at work in our lives to help us to pause and set aside the things that distract or consume our time. Help us to be those, Father, who prepare ourselves, who come with pure hands and hearts, ready to worship, to hear your word. Would you help us to be joyful participants as we worship you and as we provide for your work? We thank you, God, for the many ways that you bless us, and we praise and worship you this morning through the Son, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen.